Okay, open your Bible. We're in Acts chapter 9 this morning, starting in verse 23. Saul is uh, hiding out in Damascus. Now, after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall in a large basket. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. Huh, wonder why. And did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. And he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly in Damascus on the name of Jesus. So he was with them in Jerusalem, coming in and going out. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. Everybody's trying to kill him. What's the deal? When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. And then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord, in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Now it came to pass, as Peter went through all parts of the country, that he came down to the saints who dwelt at Lydia. And he found a certain man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, heals you. Arise and make your bed. And he rose immediately. So all who dwell in Lydia and Sharon or Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. At Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. The woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did, but it happened in those days that she became sick and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in the upper room. And since Lydia was near Joppa and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. And Peter rose and went with them. And when he had come, they brought him into the upper room and all the widows stood by him, weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them out and dwelt excuse me, and knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, because the body was dead, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. Then he gave her his hand and lifted her up, and when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. And so it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon the Tanner. Let's stop there and pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for leaving this historic event for us to ponder and wonder. Speak to us. Send your Holy Spirit to teach us that we might leave this place differently than the way we came in. We ask that in Jesus' name and all of God's children agreed by saying, Amen. You may be seated, please. Well, since we uh, just read about a a dead woman, I uh, have a story about a dead woman. (laughs) Well, actually, it was a man. As you probably already know, doctors and lawyers don't get along very often because they're often in court with each other. 
And, and this is a true story. I read about an older pathologist that was being sued uh, for malpractice when a man died. And a new young lawyer uh, questioned him, and he was a little too anxious to win his first case. So uh, this is actually the transcript. Question, doctor, before you performed the autopsy, did you check for a pulse? Answer, no. Question, did you check for blood pressure? Answer, no. Question, did you check for breathing? Answer, no. Then, is it possible that the patient was alive when you begin the autopsy? No. Question, doctor, how can you possibly be so sure of yourself? Answer, because his brain was sitting on my desk in a jar. <laughs> Question, but couldn't the patient still have been alive? Nevertheless, answer, it is possible that the patient could still have been alive and was practicing law somewhere. <laughs> Much laughter in the courtroom. <laughs> so obviously the doctor uh, didn't have as much faith as the lawyer did that people without a brain could talk. So we're, we're have been working our way through the book of Acts. If you're just joining us, the book of Acts is this wonderful historic event written by a doctor, interestingly enough, Dr. Luke. And he's describing how the church began in Jerusalem because Jesus had asked them to stay there until the Holy Spirit had come upon them. And they remember 120 people in the upper room and uh, the Holy Spirit fell. There was a mighty sound like rushing wind. The people started praying and in other tongues, but tongues that were understood by people who started coming from the city to see what all the noise, all the commotion was about. And then Peter, who had really had a really difficult time up until that time, was suddenly filled with the Holy Spirit. He stood up and he gave a sermon that was an amazing one, and 3,000 people got saved. It wasn't long after that that he did a second time up on the Temple Mount and 2,000 people get saved. So the church is suddenly huge and they need more help and they appoint seven men, seven deacons who were well thought of and uh, they, to take care of the widows because part of the church's job in those days with no welfare programs was to help feed and clothe those who were widows. Dispute broke up. Uh, broke out about we're getting less than they are and it was settled by these seven deacons one of them being Stephen who we followed who was preaching and uh, he was uh, arrested because he kept using the name of Jesus went before the high court this is the speedy version sorry uh, the supreme court of Israel and uh, he was found guilty of blasphemy and he was stoned to death with a man named Saul of Tarsus watching it so Saul gets permission to bring Christians in to go before the Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin of Israel, and uh, his intent was to stamp out Christianity. And then he got permission from the high priest to go to the next country up, which would be Syria, and he's on his way to Damascus. It's 140 miles from Jerusalem to Damascus, so he's with some men, and uh, just before he reaches the city of Damascus, uh, he's knocked down by a light so bright that it burned his eyes. He couldn't see. 
And uh, he said, who are you, Lord? <laughs> Jesus said, Saul, Saul, called me by name. You're persecuting me. And he said, who are you, Lord? But he recognized it was the Lord because he was on, the, on his backside looking up, couldn't see anything. Well, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. And uh, so what do you want me to do, Lord? Good question. Who are you, Lord? And what do you want me to do? And so Jesus tells him to go into the city. He does. And there uh, he's given a vision that a man's going to come and ask. He's going to pray for him. And he's going to get his sight back, which he did. So now he's in the city of Damascus, which is how we break into the story. So um, this is an amazing event that now we begin to see the apostles doing the same miracles that Jesus was doing as the Holy Spirit is moving through them, and the church is all pretty excited. So these questions become important, and they're, they're raised again here in this section. I, I was reading a, a story about, actually it's an old Russian story about a, a pastor, a uh, Russian Orthodox priest who was walking past the Kremlin, this is years and years ago, every morning, and uh, it was his normal walk as he went to church. And as he's uh, walking one morning, though, there was a new guard there, a young man. He recognized he was young. And, and he said, halt. And he stopped. And he said, uh, what's your name? And why are you here? And where are you going? <laughs> the pastor smiled at this young man's sense of duty. And he said, um, excuse me, how much does the government pay you to ask questions like that? He said, Three kopecks a month, sir. He said, I like those questions so much. If I paid you three kopecks a month, would you ask me those questions once a week? Because I need to be reminded what my name is and where I'm going and who I am. And that's really what comes up in this section. And they're good questions for you. Your name, hopefully by now you've figured that out, right? But who are you? And where are you going? Become very, very important to all of us. Saul knew the correct answer to those three questions now because Jesus had answered them for him. Now, uh, we uh, followed him as he, uh, he's in the city now, and uh, there's, uh, Jesus is beginning to change Saul's life, and he's slowly becoming Paul, the apostle. There's uh, three sections here, really three good works, three people that are in this section. Uh, first, the helping hand is given to Saul. We'll see by the other disciples in Damascus, the church had grown strong there. And then secondly, this hand to Aeneas, who had been for eight years unable to move, and 31 through 35, and then a hand to this dead lady, Tabitha, uh, Tada. 36 to 43 years. So that's where we're going. Fasten your seatbelt so we'll go kind of quickly. Verse 23. Now after many days were passed, actually we'll learn from the book of Galatians that Paul was there for three months in Damascus. And, uh, and so Luke's just given us a short version. Galatians 1.16. Immediately, I conferred not with flesh and blood. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter after I had been in Arabia. So it seems that 
he spent some time alone with the Lord in Arabia and then came back to Damascus and three years later. So uh, verse 24, and they, their plot became known. They wanted to kill him, it says, and we'll see that several times. Their plot became known to Saul and they watched the gates day and night. So he, Paul again comments on his own time there in 2 Corinthians in Damascus, the governor under Aretas the king kept the city of Damascus with a garrison desires to apprehend me. So he keeps recounting in his letters, reminding the people of how he grew to become the man of God that he was, 25. And then the disciples, by night, took me and let me down through the wall in a large basket. Now, um, Gates were watched day and night. Here's actually a, a, a lithograph that was done in 1890. But I, I'm showing it to you because I want you to see that is literally the wall of Damascus. And on top, you'll see they built the houses hanging over the wall. And that's still true to this day. That's a modern picture of it. And notice the houses up on the top. So it was relatively easy for Paul to go out the, the window down to the street to make his getaway. So um, this little statement about uh, letting down through the wall became a, a book written by Brother Andrew. Some of you might know that name. He actually spoke here a couple of times years ago. He passed away in, uh, just in last September, but um, Raylan and I knew him well because we worked with him smuggling Bibles into Eastern Europe. And he used this scripture to explain the ethics of smuggling. That was the title of his book. And it, several places, he's, you know, he said, uh, really, that's what Moses' mother was doing when she put him in a basket in the Nile River. And so he built from this particular scripture of Paul being in a basket down to all the various times in scripture where God used people to do things that were technically illegal but were more than legal, were very positive in helping the church grow. Uh, open doors, the, the charity, really, a mission group that Brother Andrew started is uh, still in California today, down in Tustin. And now they're taking Bibles into uh, rarely visited places like Saudi Arabia and Iran and, uh, and Vietnam and uh, just... They continue to do this. Why? Because you can't buy a Bible in Iran. You, you can't find one written in Farsi. Um, but they're printed in Orange County. <laughs> and they go there. So anyway, all from this, um, Saul is uh, uh, being sought after to kill him. And so that's how he gets out of the city. Verse 26, he goes from there to Jerusalem, about 140 miles and verse 26, and when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, hang out with the church. Why not? Get some fellowship, sing some songs. They're all afraid of him. And they didn't believe he was a disciple. It's some kind of a trick. He, he wants us to admit we're Christians, then we're going to be arrested, and we're going to be stoned to death just like Stephen was. But then another man shows up that we were introduced to in chapter 4, Barnabas. Bar, son of Nabus, encouragement. And it turns out his name 
is a picture of his character. It's who he is. And I highly recommend this man to you to look at. And he'll appear over and over again. He and Paul will travel from Tarsus and Antioch all over the known world to bring the gospel. But his ministry really was encouraging other people in the body of Christ. Do you do that? Take an opportunity when you see somebody down to encourage them in the Lord, strengthen them, pray for them, talk to them about who they are and the wonderful thing that God is doing in their life. We all need it. And this man became famous for it. And I would uh, encourage you uh, to do the same thing. Will you let God make you more useful is a good question to encourage. You are being made as a cup, according to Romans, to be held by the master's hand. You are special to God. You matter to him. He has a specific plan for you that was put in place when you were being knit together inside your mother's womb, Psalm 139 says. What? But I'm not doing anything that seems significant. Just wait. God will give you that opportunity to go into all the world. We are the clay. He is the potter. And he's not through with any of us yet. So, um, we are uh, thinking about Paul now being in Jerusalem. And Barnabas takes him to the apostles, to the twelve. And he declared to them, told them, how he had seen the Lord. How he too had seen Jesus. And had spoken with him. They had a little conversation. And how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the home, excuse me, in the name of Jesus. So here's his time there. He's giving the disciples his credentials, the apostles in Jerusalem, and verse 28. And so it was, so he was with them in Jerusalem, coming in and going out. The idea is here that he went everywhere with the apostles in Jerusalem. Now, I think of this as Saul being taken around the city by Peter and John. Can you imagine? Because he knew the city, he was living in the city, but they took him to the places of interest. Like, yes, this is the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prayed. Actually, he was leaning right on this rock. And uh, Peter says, and I was sleeping over there. Uh, and uh, God's forgiven me. And, uh, and then we went from there when he was taken into, and, he, and they took him on a tour of Jerusalem. Uh, and so let me give you a commercial about going to Jerusalem, going to Israel. If you've not been, you need to go. It, it will change your view of even these scriptures that we're reading. And you'll put yourself in the place because you know exactly what the garden tomb looks like. You know exactly what the Sea of Galilee looks like. And so you don't have to wonder. You don't have to to think, well, I wonder if it has this or that. You just get a chance to go. Now, maybe not this week, okay? But uh, hopefully by April, you could even uh, go. There's a few seats left with us, even, Lord willing. And the creeks don't rise, okay? So he's there with them in Jerusalem, verse 29. He spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him for the third time. Uh, Peter's going to, or excuse me, Paul is going to have this in his life over and over again. Um, 
he was a man who made people uncomfortable with his witness. I believe he kept using the name Jesus. You know, people will talk to you about God. What do you, what do you think about God? But when you ask them a more pointed question, have you ever asked Jesus into your life? Have you ever asked Jesus to be your Savior and Lord? Then all of a sudden people start to back away, and it's harder. Um, in this particular case, that's exactly, Paul didn't hold back at all. And we'll see that uh, he's in trouble again. They're trying to kill him, verse 30. And when the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea, and they sent him out to Tarsus. Now, Caesarea is the beautiful seaport that King Herod had built. There's a long shot from it. All that center portion is the, uh, the, the city of Caesarea Maritime. There's two Caesareas. This one's by the sea. There's some uh, beautiful shots of the amphitheater, and uh, there's... Uh, Actually, those are a bunch of people from Redlands. If you look real close, you might recognize somebody last time we were there. Uh, this is the Pilot Stone, 1968. This was uncovered. They were digging there at Caesarea, and you can almost read it in the shot. It says Pontius Pilate, a procreator, that he was the governor of Israel. And people like to say, usually German theologians like to say, well, Pontius Pilate never existed. And then in 1968, a shovel hit this stone, and they pulled it out, and there it was chiseled in this stone. And you can, when you go to Israel, you go to the museum, we go in, you can walk up and touch it. Pontius Pilate. That's what archaeology is doing all over Israel. Uncovering the stone with David's name on it. It's right next to this one. There's Caiaphas. I, I showed that to you a few weeks ago. Caiaphas' bone box. His ossuary is there. Just very physical things to bolster faith-affirming archaeology. And uh, so, again, when you go, you'll find yourself just built up in the faith. So uh, this is uh, low tide, so it looks a little crowded, but that center section... It, is the main harbor, and it's from that particular harbor that uh, Paul is going to Tarsus. Why Tarsus? That's the city he grew up in. It, it's about 560 miles north. If you look at a map, you'll see that it's, you go around the island of Cyprus and, uh, and straight up on the border of Syria and Turkey today is uh, Tarsus and then Antioch, and Tarsus is still as the second uh, largest university uh, in uh, the Muslim world, and it's the center of education still. That's where Paul was raised. But he's going back to his family. And that's an important concept that God seems to take most of us through. After I got saved, I, I had to go back to my family and explain what had happened to them, happened to me, and then uh, what God wanted in their lives. And everything was fine. My family was very religious, but uh, it was an Irish Catholic family. All the kids went through parochial school, and I still have the scars on the back of my knuckles. But I deserved every one of them. I uh, don't think badly of them. I worked hard to get those. And... Uh, and so I shared with my brothers and sisters, mom and dad, aunts and uncles, and just destroyed several Christmases in a row because I wasn't very kind uh, or 
um, diplomatic, I should say, at the uh, beginning. So pretty soon, nobody wanted to talk about Jesus with me because I was too radical. And uh, some still say that. My youngest brother would say that right now. Uh, I hope he's watching. He wouldn't be. But, <laughs> but my family um, were kind of slow to accept that. And, and I had a, a telephone call uh, a, a couple of years ago from my older sister and a very religious gal. And, and she said, she, the telephone call was serious. It was terrible because her husband, my brother-in-law, had suddenly died that morning. And uh, they were talking, and he just fell over, grabbed his chest, had a massive coroner. She knew CPR, gave it to him, called 911. They came and worked on him for several minutes, but that was it. God said, you're going home. But she had called to thank me for being so obnoxious <laughs> about Jesus. Uh, it had only been a few months earlier. They were down in Redlands, and uh, we had lunch together. Now, I have to explain, my, my brother-in-law was 6'5". He's just a huge, big guy. But, but he was also an engineer, a brilliant engineer. He was the director of the largest engineering firm in California. They built water systems all over the world, Saudi Arabia and Africa. Um, but I was intimidated by him because he's like a complete brainiac. He could do square roots in his head. Now, you and I can do square roots with a calculator as long as I show you where the button is. <laughs> but he'd do it, you give him a number, it didn't matter how big it was, he would give you the square root of it in seconds. And, and that intimidated me because he's just this really brilliant guy. But when they were down just a few months before he died, uh, they, they asked me to go to lunch. And, and at lunch, uh, I was intimidated as usual, didn't want to say anything, but... Holy Spirit was jabbing me in the ribs or the back or something. And finally I said, Howard, I, I don't want to offend you. You know, I really respect you. You're, you're a very bright guy. But I have to ask you a question. He said, sure, what is it? He said, have you ever asked Jesus into your life? And my sister audibly gasped. <gasps> oh, no, he's going there. But my brother-in-law's eyes filled up with tears. He said, yeah, when I was 13 years old. 13 years old, I went to a little Bible camp, and uh, I prayed to ask Jesus into my life, and it was a Baptist church, and they had a baptismal, and I even got baptized that day. And my sister turned and looked at him and looked at me and said, I didn't know that. And uh, he said, yeah, I, I, I've never been the same. It completely changed my view of life. And she started to cry. That's why she called me after he died to thank me for being obnoxious, okay? But let me add one other thing to that story, and you'll understand how I got that way. So I, have, I had an uncle about 10 years before that who was just the coolest guy ever. Pilot, had a Marlin boat. Uh, both of, uh, two of his three sons played uh, NFL football. Huge guys. And... Uh, and just f as fun as can be. But he intimidated me too. And I was riding, a, uh, he was riding with me in my truck. And we were going somewhere. Had 25 minutes together. And the Holy Spirit said, Ed, ask him about Jesus. I couldn't do it. I was too intimidated. I didn't do it. So God 
made sure I would not make that mistake again. The next week, he had a massive coronary and died. And I was just absolutely depressed, and I apologized to the Lord. I said, Lord, if you give me an opportunity again with anyone else in my family, I will take it, and I'll be as obnoxious as you want me to be about Jesus. So, when my brother-in-law had lunch with me, even though I was intimidated, I just went, go for it. And, you know, went blasting on in. And that's why my sister called me to thank me that I had been that obnoxious, which led to her salvation. And then my other sister's salvation. And then both of my brothers. So just take it to the Lord. Yeah, yeah. She's thankful for an obnoxious younger brother right now. Okay, so um, we're talking about Paul, and now it switches gears to Peter. Then the church is verse 31, throughout all of Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, all around Jerusalem, had peace, and they were edified, built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord, and comfort, help of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Well, this is really five characteristics of a healthy church. They have peace with God and the peace of God. They are building people up, encouraging people. And I hope you feel that way when you come to church here. This is a church built on the understanding of the word grace, God's favor. He gives it to everyone. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that you would be encouraged and that you would encourage other people to come who are afraid of religion. They've gone to a church where they get beat up all the time. So edifying, building people up, walking in reverence of God, we honor his word and we study it. That's why we, we go through these verses. So you'll become familiar with who he is. The Holy Spirit help. The word help here is, is literally uh, to have comfort from the Holy Spirit uh, to be built up and helped. And they were multiplied, numerical growth. So they had peace. And that's what churches should bring to people instead of frustration. Now, here's Peter. 32, and it came to pass as Peter went through all parts of the country, he also came down to the saints who dwell at Joppa. Now, these are not people who are only in stained glass with little halos around their head. You are the saints. Uh, what? <laughs> Wife just, see, I told you I was a saint. You, <laughs> you are a saint. Well, that sounds a little bit sweeping. If Jesus is your Lord, if you surrender your life to him, that makes you a saint. You're already saved. You're already going to heaven. Now you're just working out the steps to it. God is causing you to grow. So he goes to the saints who dwell in this city of Lydia. Now, uh, it's the modern city of Lod, where you actually land if you go into Israel today. And uh, according to Acts um, Eight four, Philip the evangelist had passed through this city and he would live in Caesarea. Verse 33. And there he found a certain man named Aeneas who had been bedridden eight years, paralyzed. Uh, the Greek word here, paralumnia. He's a paralytic. He's suffering from a loss of movement in his legs for eight years. Eight days and you can barely walk. Eight days in ICU and it becomes very difficult to walk. Eight years lost control 
And Peter speaks to him, says, Anit, Anit, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, heals you. Now, notice how clear he was. It isn't me, Peter says, but Jesus is healing you. Arise and make your bed. Now, you teenagers, read this verse. Memorize it. Make your beds. I'm just trying to help you moms out. (laughs) So, uh, no room for relapse in this command. You're not going to go back to bed. You're going to make it up. And you'll remember that Jesus did that often when he healed people. When the guy was beside the pool of Siloam, uh, for years and years, Jesus said, rise up and pick up your bed and walk. Go take it with you. You're not going to need this place any longer. It was a placeholder for the guy. No, you're not going to need. This is a permanent healing. Arise and make your bed. And he rose immediately. Matthew 5, God says to you, you are the light of the world. You are a representative of the creator of the universe. That's who you are. God says so. You are the light of the world. A city that's set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they might see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Good works... Yes, the things that you do that are obviously something that are an encouragement to people that are struggling goes down as a good work. Now, you don't do good works to get saved. Don't get it backwards. It's the opposite. Because you are saved, because you have a growing relationship with Christ, you do good things for people, not so other people will notice but so that God will get the advantage, that people will see it, the weight of God will be visible in your life. And uh, so that's what God is speaking to all of us. Let your light shine before men. Verse 35. So all who dwelt at Lydia, the city, and Sharon, or Sharon as it looks like in English, Sharon is the valley that runs uh, through really the center of Israel, and we know the the rose of Sharon. It's a wild rose bush that grows in the valley of Sharon. And if you go to Israel, you'll be able to stop. Once we'll off the bus, you can get out and pick some and take them home. And see, anyway, I'm commercially in here. Uh, and uh, all the people were moved by this. This is what Lydia looks like. <clears throat> this actually is a caravan zera. Oh, you can hear it in the name caravan, a caravan that every 23 to 24 miles across the entire Silk Road all the way to China are these buildings still to this day. Uh, it's the place where the camels would stop and the camels would be downstairs and the upper story was where uh, the travelers would spend the night. And I, I showed this to you because Bethlehem where Jesus was born, we're coming into the Christmas season. Maybe we're already here, right? Next week. And, uh, and it says he was born in a stable. The Greek word is caravanzera. It was a place where camels would stop and all kinds of animals. But uh, that's uh, in the city here of Lydia. And uh, 
it is uh, also, the, that's an, an old shot of the city in uh, 1890s, so a chromograph, a real old one, a beautiful spot. And, um, now, the last section, Tabitha, verse 36. At Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. The woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. So here's another study in people that this one is doing good works. Now, Joppa is the ancient seaport uh, of Israel, uh, about only about 30. Now, that's the whale of Joppa, because you might remember that Jonah left to go to where he was supposed to go. He went uh, due west instead of where he was supposed to go to the city of Nineveh. But that whale is there because the father, the city fathers of the of the harbor there were proud that, I guess they're proud that the whale swallowed Jonah there. I don't know. But then he, right, right there, there's this huge whale sitting there. And um, today uh, it is Jaffa, J-A-F-F-A, and uh, then it was Joppa, J-O-P-P-A. So anyway, the woman's name is Dorcas. And uh, Tabitha, uh, if I had a daughter, I would never call her Dork. But, uh, but actually, it's a beautiful name. It means gazelle. And uh, so uh, just stay with Tabitha. And she's full of these uh, kindness. She has good works of kindness. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. And they had, when they had washed her, which is a traditional Jewish custom for someone who dies, the, the thought is you come into the world with amniotic fluid that you're washed clean. So when you leave, they wash the person clean. And, and then they uh, cover them with the takamine. It's called a shroud. Uh, very much probably like what Jesus had. It's a large fold-over thing from your feet. And so she's in this upper room. And they always bury the same day that a person dies, before sundown. And so they needed Peter to come quickly. And she was uh, less than 10 miles away. Since Lydia is near Joppa, verse 38, the disciples had heard that Peter was there. And so they sent two men, imploring him to come and not delay uh, so they could, he could touch this lady. They fully expected him to raise this lady from the dead. That's faith, great faith. 39, Peter arose and went with them. And when he had come, they taught him, they took him, excuse me, brought him to the upper room. And all the widows stood by him weeping. So he's in this mass of women that are weeping. And they're showing him the things that this woman had made, tunics and garments. The, the word means cardigans, like sweaters, and, uh, which she had made while she was with him. And so he's surrounded by these women. He says, I love verse 40, and he put them out. Leave, ladies, thank you, I got it. He knelt down and he prayed. Now, I don't know what he prayed, okay? But I think it's, it's something like, uh, Lord, uh, you know, I was just a fisherman and I was minding my own business, taking care of my nets, and, and then you walked by and, and you said, follow me. And so I did. And, and then that whole thing with the crucifixion, I mean, that was a mess. Lord, now all these women are expecting me to do something. 
uh, you have to do something, Lord. I'm desperate here. Please. And I think that's a great prayer. I, I think we ought to all pray the same thing when we're met with something that's impossible. You know, I was praying for a guy last night that's dying of cancer, and, and I don't have anything except Jesus, right? So, Lord, you have to do something. Do something. So, Peter is praying that way, I believe. And uh, then he turns to the body. Notice she's dead. He knows that. And he said, Tabitha, arise. Tabitha kumi, literally. Which is very close to what Jesus said to Jairus' daughter in, in Mark chapter 5. Only her name was Talitha, which is little lamb arise. And this is one letter different. Tabitha, which is this gazelle, arise. Gentle gazelles are, are very um, gifted. And, uh, and so she opened her eyes. And when she opened her eyes, she saw Peter. And she sat up. <laughs> I'm sure Peter was excited. Then he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints, there you are again, and widows, he presented her alive. Here she is. And uh, this is the, uh, this section is the first time Christians are called saints, the second one in this story. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Faith to believe that God would raise them from the dead. You have that faith too because Jesus is going to raise you from the dead. Finally, so it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon a Tanner. Now, Simon's house is famous. If you go to Joppa, you can visit it for, I think it's two shekels, but <laughs> there, there it is. I just wanted you to see that they honor that place to this day. Now, Peter We'll see as we go deeper next time, or maybe after Christmas, we have a, an opportunity to see that Jews didn't hang out with tanners because tanners always were touching dead animals. And, and so Peter is, is slowly being changed from one who's bound by the law to one who says everyone come. Everyone is available to Jesus. So let me close with a, a true story. I was reading a, a pastor uh, who uh, is a golfer. And, you know, sometimes golfers are like, whoa, way over the top. And he is a little bit. But he was saying that, uh, that he had been in the newspaper in his city because uh, he had won a golf tournament that was pro-am, amateurs and professional golfers. Now, uh, I don't know a lot about golf. I, I did some caddying when I was in junior high. But when they have a big tournament, they have foursomes. So they, you're with three other guys. And so this pastor is with three other guys. Two of them are, are uh, just businessmen. But the last guy is one of the best pros in golf in the world today, okay? And so he's on his team. And he said, and the way it works is uh, all four people on the team you know, hit the ball towards the pin, and the one that's closest is the one that the foursome plays, right? 
And so he said, I didn't have to do anything. Every time this guy hit it, it'd be on the green right next to the pin. And then there were other foursomes, and the one who gets the lowest score wins, right? Okay, so he's feeling the, like he could do anything. It wouldn't really matter. When it gets to the last hole, they've taken 17 holes from this pro because he's getting them all in. Birdies and, and just amazing golfer. And so he said, you know what? I'm just going to take my biggest swing I've ever done on the last hole. He said, what do I got to lose? In fact, I'm probably not even going to notice anyway, right? And so he said he hauled back, and he said he, was, he just went for it. He hit it as hard as he could. He said it could have gone anywhere. But he got a hole in one. <laughs> and, and he said he didn't know what to say. And the pro says, you've been holding back this whole time? All of us are in the same situation. Jesus never misses a hole in one. When we do what he asks us to do, you are unbeatable when you're doing it with Jesus. Galatians, or excuse me, Ephesians 2, 9, says, it is by grace you have been saved. God's favor I didn't deserve it. You didn't deserve it. He just gives it to anyone who asks. It is by grace you have been saved. Through faith. It is not of yourself. None of us can brag about it. We have been saved. We are his workmanship, it says. And the word is poema. And it means a poem. You are God's poem. You are his masterpiece. And he's doing the work in you and changing you every day to be more like him. You are his masterpiece, his poema. And saved for good works that were prepared for you while you were put together in your mother's womb. The things that you and I get to do now with him are meant to show other people what Jesus is and doing in the world. We have a world that, that's just being fractured in so many ways. But God wants you and I to go out there and be kind and gentle and loving and available for people who need encouragement to be strengthened. That's your job, church. Go and do it. Would you stand, please, and we'll pray together. Thank you, Lord. Lord, we do, yeah. Lord, we do thank you that you always get a hole in one. And when we're obedient to you, that you bring great things into being. And, and Lord, we thank you that you have called most of us in this room, and we know already. But we pray for any of those who are here this morning that haven't surrendered to you, and pray that you would give them the grace to do so. Christians, please pray. So I wonder if there's someone here this morning, maybe you've been sitting through this, and you, you know you're a sinner. Nobody has to tell you that. We all are. And, uh, and you've been thinking about your sins and how you need them to be forgiven. This moment is for you. If you'd like to know that your sins have been forgiven, if you'd like to know that you're going to spend eternity with God, if, if you're ready to surrender your life to him, would you let me know you're ready by looking up at me and raising your hand? I won't do anything to embarrass you. I'll just call it. God bless you. And then we'll pray together in a minute. You're saying, God, I need you to forgive my sins and take my life. God bless you. Three of you right in front of me. And you, sir, God bless you. And in the very back, 
God bless you. Anyone over here? Yes, God bless you. Two of you. A couple. Yes, God bless you. So don't worry if I missed your hand. God never misses your hand. He sees it. Those of you that raised your hands, would you please pray with the rest of us out loud? We're going to do it together to make it easy. We're going to ask Jesus to forgive our sin. So please repeat after me the words I'm saying. Please say, Lord Jesus, I surrender. I give you my life. Please forgive my sins. Fill me with your Holy Spirit so that I can serve you from this day forward. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 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 Amen.